Welcome to New Persuasion Podcast. And I'm Bill Boer. And Bill, it's uh, Friday Night Lights. Yeah, Funky Friday. Funky Friday. You're actually staying for dinner, which is very lovely. Of you to have me. Rare. Yeah. Yeah, it was very nice. Well, yeah. you hosted us for dinner, though, just a couple on Memorial Day, I think. And you right. made a lovely lamb dish, which was outstanding. Very Among nice. other things. I mean, I mean, I don't want to say that you didn't have hors d'oeuvres and right. fine well, wines. The know, whole thing was a... It was. Well, what we're about to have smells very good. Bolognese, a little wow. pasta, bolognese, some salad. That's lovely. Lemon squares for dessert. Very nice. Very nice. I think uh, yeah, there's some like hors d'oeuvres out. Yeah. Vegetables mostly to keep us healthy. Healthy stuff. That's good. I worked out a lot this week, so that's good. I Me too. Healthy. Yeah. I'm on day five of Sean T's Sean Week, who is one of the signature Beachbody. I'm giving a free endorsement, but I don't care because I believe in that product. But it's uh, he, he was the developer of the workout Insanity. Oh, right. <laughs> and he's done several other. And this is like one week that is supposed to really just kick you into fitness excellence. And I, I'll tell you, I've been uh, kicked I don't know if kicked in, but I've been kicked. You look, you look excellent. Thank right. you, thank, thank you. you. We want to give a shout out to to our uh, one of our favorite and most faithful listeners, Josh friend, friend and, and friend contributor of, and contributor to yeah. the show. Yes, Josh Redder, who was featured in the Galley Report, I think it's called, which is basically the editor of Christianity Today, Tim Galley. He generally sends out like I think a, like a. I don't know if it's an email and it goes on Christianity's website. It's with Galley. You know, he's a very, he actually written a really good book called Beautiful Orthodoxy too. He's a, he's a thoughtful guy and he's, you know, paying attention to, he's an editor of a major magazine, paying attention to stuff that's going out. Josh wrote a piece for Mockingbird that he chose to highlight about Wendell Berry. And so that's, uh, yeah, very impressive. Job. Very good. Josh Redder. Thank you. Well, maybe we'll have him on for a bullshit just to talk a little about Wendell Berry. Yeah, to talk about his, his article. That's great. I think we should. So there you go. This is uh, New Persuasive Words is officially in uh, joint celebration of this achievement. Yes. We endorse it. We do, 100%. We do not endorse the new health care. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's very interesting. I listened to a two-piece interview on Freakonomics with Charles Koch. And wh- why should you hate? why should you hate Charles Koch? And I came away so impressed with this guy. Uh, and again, deeply, probably politically, we disagree, but he's such a principled human being. And he would do things like when they blocked the Keystone Pipeline, which he supported. And he supports it for innovation reasons. I mean, he basically, his father uh, lost a uh, kind of bogus lawsuit about a technology proprietary stuff or oil refinery stuff, which he later found out because the, the other company bought the judge. Oh. And then he had to go and do build refineries in Stalin's Soviet Union, to which he was like, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. And he instilled some values to science. So when Koch went to MIT, studied philosophy, was enraptured with the enlightenment and how liberation and innovation and belief in science and technology, and individual dignity and liberty really just ignites human flourishing. And again, this is where his libertarian comes from. But I just, after two interviews with this guy, I thought, whether or not I agree with him, you cannot deny this is a principled man. And so he said when they denied, that, when Obama blocked the pipeline, he said, I almost wrote them a thank you letter. You're going to make me about 750 additional million dollars a year because now, because you've denied this, 
I have some refinery stuff up on the Canadian thing, but I still was against it. He's like, I'm against these tax breaks, which we'll get billions from, but I want them gone. <laughs> and he tried to start, he actually tried to start a group of business, like big business industry titans against um, crony capitalism, which basically against all these tax breaks, even and especially when they benefit you. And he said, well, that didn't go far. They all wrote me, we're totally with you in spirit, totally with you. But they all invariably say, but my industry can't survive without the government right, kickback. Right, right. So I just thought this is a fascinating guy. But I thought like, uh, um, what would Coke say? Because he's like, well, I'm against this two-tiered society. I won't leave because I'm at the top, but I'd, I'd like to transform it. So it's not two-tiered anymore. So it will be good for some people. <laughs> uh, Coke, the Coke brothers. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it will be good for uh, Donald Trump's cabinet because yeah. none of them are poor. Um it, you know, I've looked at it. I what have, is the 1%? I don't know. 250,000 or 200? Oh, it's, no, it's higher, I think. And now 200, 1%. Okay. I think it's higher than that. Top 1% income. But at any rate, I've, uh, yeah, looked at it. So it looks like it could be good for, although the folks from Slate said this, uh, it actually says the Senate version cuts more for Medicaid than the House version did. So if the House version was mean, what, what, what would Donald Trump call the Senate version? He'll probably call it law. That's probably what he's going to call it. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, so basically, uh, according to so, so I'm looking at cities are listed in sending order. This isn't helpful. Well, uh, so who uh, from from what I've seen again, I have not read read just parts of it. Uh, if you're young and healthy, you'll benefit from it. If you're rich, you'll get uh, you'll get tax cuts. Um, I think the insurance companies are going to do pretty well with this. Matter of fact, everybody, all the insurance companies are complaining about uh, uh, the losses, but they had incredible gains last year, the insurance company. They made an amazing profit last year. So I think if you have a disability, if you're over 50, um, if you're in the middle class, uh, this is not going to be a great plan for you. Well, let me just say, if you want to be in the top 5%, you got to make $214,000 or higher. To be a top 1%er, the top 1% had an adjusted gross income of $465,626 for the high, higher or higher for the 2014 tax year. So it's safe to say that you and I are not 1%ers. I don't even think we're 5%ers either. No, no. Are we in the time? Are we in the meeting? I don't want to know. Let's see the gentleman's seat. I, 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 again, I, for, I, one time um, when Don Baker and I were on Young Life staff, uh, we got snowed in and uh, we couldn't go out and be with kids. So we started, uh, we made the mistake of trying to figure out what we make an hour. And we were so depressed we couldn't work for a couple yeah, of days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he was at, uh, I think he was like 50 cents an hour. And I think I was, I was getting paid a little more because I had a baby on the way and, uh, I think I made like a dollar an hour or something like that. Anyway. Coke also is for basically pretty open immigration policies. If anybody can be productive here, you think we have to have some kind of border screening, but basically his criteria is if you're productive, you want to work, you can become gainfully employed, you're in. Yeah. So we want to thank our newest sponsor, the Coke Brothers, who are bringing innovation to all of you this time. He also says that, that part of the criminal justice system, the problem is these exorbitant penalties. He's like, they're just silly. He's like, if you're selling marijuana, he's like, I don't use drugs and I advocate drugs. But if you're selling marijuana and you have a gun in your car because it's it's not a sanctioned industry and you're afraid of getting robbed and a cop pulls you over, what are you going to do? Well, this could ruin your life, this conviction. So you're going to run or shoot the cop. He's like, if there was just a reasonable fine, you'd pay the fine and move on and keep selling marijuana. I mean, he just – Coke, at some points, he, he sounds he, – he's such a principled person. Again, 
the, some of the libertarianism. Whatever you're drinking over there, I don't want any of it. Well, I, I'll <laughs> tell you, I just, I just want to be fair. Keep it fair. Keep it fair. Very good. I mean, I, I would encourage anybody to listen to it. It's a very moving interview about, again, it's, it's nice to hear a principled person, especially no, one with uh, a lot of money. Again, I wrote a letter to my, uh, uh, one of my senators today and I said, I would, uh, whatever happened to, uh, compassionate conservatism. Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, Pat Toomey, who is the author, apparently, of the huge Medicaid. That was his idea to cut all the Medicaid. This, the man who has so much uh, power of convictions, he didn't tell anybody who he voted for for president until after he won re-election. By the way, Koch said that one of Nixon's guys said that, you know, one of the – I forget which it was from Nixon. He says, Ronald Ray, Raymond Reagan, I'd like to – look, I believe in you. But you can't implement your program if you just get the Nixon, old Nixon flunkies in the White House. He's thinking Reagan largely ignored that because he wasn't that interested in administrative and getting into the weeds. <laughs> Very fascinating, winsome interview. So, but that's we not what we're that's, talking about. No, today. that's not what we're talking about. We and soon we have to eat bolognese sauce over linguine. I hope I like a flat noodle. <laughs> so, chat. We're going back to the teacher. We've just said, you know, we, we've you know, uh, people like Aquinas, right? We'll call Paul the the apostle. You know, uh, we'll call. Aristotle, the philosopher. Uh, we'll call Gregory Nazianzus the theologian. The theologian. So we're going to call so the teacher. Yeah, we'll just use the definition. The teacher. Yeah. The teacher. Thomas Halik. Yes. Yeah, so Jesus is still our rabbi. Rabbi, or Rebbe. But, but, but uh, Halik is our teacher. Our teacher. Yeah. The teacher. So this is from I Want You to Be on the God of Love, chapter 12, Love the World. And he has this great quote to begin the chapter. From Tehard de Chardin, love is the only force which can make things one without destroying them. And he goes on to talk about um, just basically uh, Tehard de Chardin's kind of view of evolutionary forces and, and evolving Christianity along with the, the evolving forces in the world and ask, you know, is present day Christianity capable of such a, being such a creative force of renewal? Is it ready to seize the initiative in this way? Because he says how how Tehard believed that the the love of the earth and matter in combination with trust in the creative force of man and nature would bring into the world sufficient elan, great word, <laughs> to complete the evolutionary process of cosmic convergence. You know, one of the things there's a, there's so much interesting in this chapter. One of the things I think is interesting is kind of a side discussion. Uh, Tehard de Chardin he thought that we were at the Christianity was only in its infancy. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And this idea of, uh, you know, everyone's kind of thinking about, you know, the decline of Christianity. I think that has way too much for those of us who spend a lot of time in mainline circles. We, 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 uh, forget that, uh, Christianity is doing pretty well in the Southern Hemisphere and other places and, uh, booming in China and things like that. But from our, uh, Western perspective, uh, we, uh, uh, white Christianity is not on the top of the food chain right now. Jim Jordan, Peter Lightheart's mentor, said, you know, I don't know why we call the patristics, who he studies quite diligently. I mean, he loved, why we call the church fathers? So the church babies. In the they sense are the of, church babies. Yeah, yeah, it's the developmental form, of, which, but the DNA is still with us in important ways. And Yeah, no, it's, it is, you know, and I think it is an interesting thing to, that somehow, um, I mean, Christianity has had its, you know, ups and downs throughout its history. So, uh, to say that this is, that, the, you know, Christianity is in decline, um, uh, kind of buys into one version of liberalism, which is also an interesting thing he talks about, uh, you know, which version of liberalism is going to win the West or win Europe. It's an interesting idea to talk about. Yeah, and in this chapter, he he does a good job of laying out what I do think in the West 
And by the way, I mean, we're talking like Western Europe, North America. Do we count New Zealand and Australia? Yeah, yeah. 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 We will. We'll count you guys in. We have, we have listeners, I think, there, there, there in may both be, places. There may be part of the, our United States that's no longer part of the West. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, <laughs> but, yeah, there you go. Yeah, but anyway, that's another so, story. So uh, he, he basically says that, that what we have as, as the major sort of cultural, ideological, philosophical, and spiritual forces are Christian humanism, secular humanism, and neo-paganism. And by neo-paganism, and it's, he's funny because he, was, he talks about how he was asked to delineate the relationship between these. And he said, I would draw three circles that actually were like Venn diagram overlapping. First mm-hmm. neo-paganism, then Christianity, Christianity, and then secular humanism as actually uh, – but then he talks about the dynamic interplay. But he says that um, when he's talking about um, secular humanism as the unwanted child of Western Christianity, <laughs> yeah. that uh, – that the time has come for Christians to stop regarding secular humanism as the prodigal son. In other words, to stop looking on it from the unspoken viewpoint of the upright older brother in Jesus' well-known parable. And he says, the behavior and the fa- uh, of the father in the story will remain ex- inexplicable to us until we realize his secret. The secret is his unconditional love, love for both sons. The parable of the prodigal son, or more accurately, of the two brothers and the generous father sends a message to the Pharisees among both Jews and Christians. Your virtue could ensnare you in pride and superiority. If you cease to consider as brothers those whom you long perceive to be misguided sinners, you might find to your bitter astonishment, like the elder brother in Jesus' parable, that they will precede you into the house of the merciful and forgiving Father, whose love is generous and unconditional. Those who have lost themselves in the world may come to realize something in that far country that those who constantly remain at home have overlooked and failed to fully appreciate. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing. In an earlier chapter, he, he says a lot of what in the West is called Buddhism or New Age or uh, um, even some of the spiritual but not religious, he says really is not it's not it's not Buddhism like Buddhists look at it. It's not, you know, some version of Hinduism like Hindus. It's really kind of liberal Protestantism, uh, even their idea of love, the centrality of love. And he even mentions the Dalai Lama, um, Gandhi. He says a lot of their thinking was really processed through interaction with the West. And uh, it's it's just an interesting to think that even this idea of the two, the two sons of the father uh, – I think a lot of spirituality that sometimes people see as antithetical to the faith, there's a lot of genuine seeking in it that, that, is, a de- that is a derivative from things that we believe creedally. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, and it's interesting, too. I was thinking of a conversation a few weeks ago with Rusty Reno, who's a great guy. And we will do a bulgish issue with him at some point, go up to New York and or get him on remotely or something. But I love Rusty. But Rusty kind of has this, you know, and, and, and admittedly, there is a trope like, well, it comes from Weber and other things about disenchantment of the world. And, you know, Rusty's kind of like, well, you're enchanting or disenchanting. If I was head of the Catholic Church, I'd get Latin mass all the time, incense everywhere, like more enchantment. I was like, well, what do you think of uh, Pope Francis? Disenchanter, modernist. But can, I, I, can I just say, uh, can I just ask one disturbing trend, trend here? I'm just, we spend some time talking about taking this to the next stage. We've talked about what it means to maybe get, you know, market ourselves a little bit. 
maybe begin to some other to some other projects where we have sponsors. Is there any connection between you talking about the Koch brothers? And, <laughs> I hope. I hope. I mean, I'm just wondering subconsciously. I mean, I'm just. I'm not saying that we're selling out. Uh, Show me the money. It's like Jerry McGuire. <laughs> Jerry, say, Scotty, say you love conservative people. I love conservative people. <laughs> uh, uh, right, but you know, but I think too easily. What I love, Halik, is like basically like let's get over ourselves on, on trying to parse out modern influence too quickly. And it, oh, it, I love. He says it would be extremely nonsensical to continue the dispute over whether to say yes or no to modernity. <laughs> 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 a dispute that has divided Christians for so long and exhausted both both camps, as well as causing the church to waste many opportunities to tackle genuine problems and signs of the times. Modernity is part of our identity. Indeed, the conservatives, uh, my friends, like Rusty and the Koch brothers, <laughs> well, the Koch brothers aren't friends, but, uh, but Dave French, I think, is a friend. The conservatives are more deeply rooted in the paradigm of modernity than they are prepared to admit, right. and fundamentalism However much it swears by tradition is a typically modern phenomenon. Uh, Rusty actually wrote in his book, um, The Church in the Ruins, where he was a sort of conservative renewal guy in the Episcopal Church saying why you can't become Catholic. He became Catholic a couple years later. But he was saying basically <laughs> that like – he's saying that what Adolf von Harnack, the dean of liberal Protestantism in the 19th century, and Darby, the fathers of dispensational of the communists, they just – that modern notion – We've discovered the new meaning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can both start over again from the beginning. Nobody's ever thought all these insights quite like we have. Right. No. <laughs> I mean, that's I tell you that it's it's a great yeah. You know, the other thing I can't help but thinking when we talk about you know how close neo paganism and they all run closely together. Yeah, really, the battle for Christmas is a battle for neo pagan symbols for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty, and the uh, traditional Christian values are really traditional second century pagan. Roman Empire values for it, the most part. In the latest episode of American Gods, like Odin is trying to recruit Ostra, who is the former, you know, goddess of the spring reel. And basically the new gods who are the screen gods, Instagram, you know, show up and they'll have their virtual things and they're like, Look, he's the old way. Mankind if it doesn't have a screen, you can and we made a deal with the candy companies and the things that and so basically she is like a sort of, you know, southern you know, refined lady with her big hat. Looks like she's hosting something like a for for the Kentucky Derby or something. And it's Easter, and there's all these rabbits, and all the Jesuses show up because there's a Jesus for every community. <laughs> it's my boys, my boys. It's like, look, you know, you made this, we made this bargain. You're still getting worship, and and Odin's like, they're not worshiping you. They're worshiping him. They're not praying to you. <laughs> and Jesus looks so conflicted. The head, he's like. I didn't know I was causing so much pain. <laughs> you, 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 you know, Jesus sort of always, it's interesting in the show. They always present an authentic Jesus. Like the Mexican Jesus um, stands in front of a vigilante and takes a bullet for, um, for uh, someone that's undocumented trying to cross the Rio Grande. And like this Jesus is kind of a white sort of American Jesus, and he's just so empathetic that he would have hurt the pagan goddess. I mean, it's just very... Yeah, it's funny. You know, Jesus, you know, Jesus is Jesus. Well, I thank our sponsor, the new... Uh, what's the show called? Oh, American Gods. American Star- Gods. You can, like to thank you can catch that in Stars. Right, new episodes you. every, I think, Thursday. <laughs> 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 this should be our pilot for to get sponsors. Like, we, sorry, we have... We, you know, uh, for a minute, I thought we could place products all throughout the room, then I realized... 
we're audio, <laughs> not video. Well, you were asking what I was drinking. Uh, and I, well, I just want to say that oh, this here. is um, doers. Okay. okay, wait a minute. Here, wait a minute. I almost dropped my Ray-Ban sunglasses here. Excuse me. Okay. As I move my Amazon Your Kindle. Your Amazon Kindle. <laughs> I'm using the Kindle app on an iPad. That's right. Anyway, as we... As we still cling to what little integrity we have left, let's move on. Yeah, our teacher will not be happy with us if he hears that. <laughs> no, uh, this is, he by the say, way, this is neo paganism taking over right here. No, exactly, the, actually, consumerism. The, 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 yeah, this is the acceptable narcissism and neediness he talks about for people that are doing what we're doing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting though. Even he talks about how the danger with this neo paganism. You know, and I think that I mean, lest we sound pejorative here but 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 there is kind of pope benedict talks about this there is a kind of development in world religion he thinks and he's not trying to cram everything into one category but once you realize that you're making the guy but george bernard shaw says right that god made man in his own image and we return the favor i mean once you realize that's the project you go one of three ways like the way of enlightenment like in Western Europe in the 17th century. And he sees it in the pre-Socratics, like and the Socratic tradition in Plato and Aristotle were saying, no, we, what if we looked for transcendence in human understanding, critical reflection, mystical identity, which he sees in Buddhism, Hinduism, and, and it, some in some other theistic yeah, mysticism. Yeah, and this yeah. Is, yeah and then mm. he thinks prophetic revolution is where there's generally some kind of prophetic figure that says there is a transcendent reality that's actually personal, but not just us reflected in a mirror. And then he thinks Christianity, Islam, uh, and Judaism are all in that mold. Um, and again, for all their differences, he sees some commonalities. But it's interesting because, you know, Halik says there's a danger in a kind of unreflective neopaganism, a sort of uh, just consumeristic spirituality merged with the consumer capitalist forces. But he says there's something deeper there. Christianity has even made overtures to neo-paganism, the current awakening of awareness for the sacred and the mystical. This chiefly takes the form of the search for the deeper common basis for the mysticism, the Ernst Trelch, of whom I'm a big fan, once called a sort of third type of Christianity, alongside the churches and the sects. He even regarded it as a kind of universal religious philosophy present in all the great religious cultures. This broad ecumenism, a super-denominational interreligious spiritual alliance of contemplative people, is sometimes presented as a human defense against the negative influences of the modern technological civilization created by Western secular rationality, a civilization alienated from humankind, nature, and God. In this category are the interreligious meditative meetings, such as cooperation in the field of ecology, the protection of creation, from the damaging effects of civiliza- of a civilization of unlimited growth. And you and I have been listening to, we'll give another shout out to somebody who will not sponsor us because he's looking for that, philosophize this. His yeah. Heidegger, I mean, I think this is what Heidegger's getting Absolutely. at. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. This kind of like, Heidegger said, I love science, but I fear technology and this sort of commodification and just objectification of the created order. Right. The, the, the total disconnection of the, of the, of the human self. From its natural setting, yeah. You know, one of the things I think we mentioned this, and I, I, we, I want you to say it again because you said it before we start recording uh, about the brilliance of this one chapter of Halik. You know, in terms of how do we approach, you know, as people of faith, how do we approach the world? Yeah, this is one of the best chapters of missiology I've ever read because he kind of calls on Christians to. He says, you know, g- get away from this sort of um, being a Christian in this sort of um, I own the truth 
kind of thing. To becoming a Christian, you're on a journey, a pilgrimage. He talks about his own book about faith. And he has a way of, I mean, he's appropriately critical of some things, but ultimately, I love how he opens this chapter that love is the only thing that can bring things together without destroying them. If they create a unity that doesn't destroy, where there's, uh, you know, because at the heart of this, I think is is his triune vision of reality that God is God is one and three. God is somehow there's plurality and unity which doesn't destroy either. You know, one of the things he uses as an illustration in an earlier chapter, um, why love, you know, and and love and truth are the only way to truly persuade is um, we have forgotten it, but there are uh, over, you know. A uh, million and a half people killed, um, almost, a, you know, several million people displaced because we were going to bring democracy, in part because we were going to bring democracy, democracy by force yeah. to a region. And um, so I, I think that um, – and he talks really in a lot of ways. A lot of the kind of fundamentalist thinking, Christian, even that goes by Christian, that fuels some of um, – you know, that we are the great, you know, the great hope of the world, uh, American exceptionalism. And now that's devolved to American first is is not Christian at all, even though many Christians support it. And uh, because behind it is a kind of demonic power focus uh, that has much more to do with pagan uh, pagan might is right than the gospel. Of do you mean love. the Jersey Devils? <laughs> what? <laughs> De- demonic for I think the Jersey Devil. Oh, I thought you were talking hockey for a minute. Yeah, I was. But I'm oh, okay. No, the Devils. Uh, yeah. Now you know it's interesting. Um, yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking about like something that George Hunzinger said about Karl Barth. That basically, for Barth, something about all reality, all persons being elect in Christ, and Christ being the center of the covenant of creation. That basically, you can't get everything wrong, even if you want to. Hmm. And I think that that's the spirit in which Halik writes. Like he finds this way, and again, he's not—he's very particular in his commitments, but he finds a way to see that Christ plays in a thousand places. And I feel like if we had hermeneutical lenses, more like that, interpretive lenses on reality that were that were much more like the the enlightened, I suppose, for lack of a better term, reader of the parable of the prodigal son that sees that we're all lost and yet all found. And that our lostness and foundness looks different. And we can tell, we can learn from hearing how each was lost and found in different ways. Yeah, he, he talks earlier about how much religion, including Christian religion, is some kind of human projection. Um, actually, in the chapter of where he talks about how do we have faith after the Holocaust, after all the tragedies, after even, you know, you think of the effects of colonialism, slavery, all this stuff. He says this, I believe the only thing that is not a mere human projection and that we can apprehend as the manifestation of God in history is God's commandment, you shall not kill, and Jesus' appeal for love and forgiveness. These are radically different values that transcend our human world of notions, expectations, wishes, and fears. Love as the Bible speaks about it and as Jesus embodies it and testifies to it is something completely different. It is how God is present in human history. Everything else that we people fill history with is human, all too human, and often inhuman. What God brings into history and where we need to seek him is love. I am a Christian because I have come to believe in this love. All we need is love. All seven and we'll watch them fall. They stand in the way of love and we will smoke them all with an intellect and a savoir faire.
Oh, oh. 